The scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to, to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ's power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. Inside of the announcement sheet, you will find an outline, if you're visiting with us, that you can use if, uh, if you would like to as we go through this message. Uh, sort of a fill-in-the-blank kind of an outline and a place for you to make some notes. Uh, the answers to, to all of those blanks will be up here on the screen. And uh, we are going through a series of lessons this year that... Um, we're starting in Genesis and going all the way through the year, and we're going to end in Revelation here about the, the third week of December, and it's going to be about 70 messages uh, Sunday morning and Sunday nights as we go through the Bible telling the story. And uh, there is a line that we have been using that uh, that's kind of describes the way that we are, are reading the Bible and, and looking at the Bible this year. And the statement up here on the screen goes like this. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God. It is about man and our relationship with God and how everything was created by God. What went wrong when sin was introduced into the world and the thorns and the thistles began to invade God's good creation, but not just God's good creation, but His creatures, those that are made in His image, that the thorns and the thistles have gotten inside of us. And that has created problems. And not only how the thorns and the thistles have gotten inside of us, but what God is doing through Christ Jesus to put it all back together again. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians. And before we do that, let's ask God to bless us as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we're grateful that You have given us this time that we can come together in this place and recognize You as the supreme value of the universe, that You are our God, our Creator, our Father, our shepherd, our savior, and that your eyes are always on us in grace and in love and in compassion and mercy and all of those words that, that our brother Ken has shared with us during our, our communion devotional this morning. We pray, Father, that, that in all that we do and all that we sacrifice, that we will do as our brother John uh, before his prayer at the collection reminded us is that we were doing something beautiful that honors you in, in the way that we live, in the way that we make sacrifice and honor your son Jesus. And so as we approach this, this profound book by Paul, 
We're asking you to bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear in order for us to be transformed, Father, by these words that were first birthed in your heart. Thank you for them. And thank you again for our time to come together as a family and as brothers and sisters and as friends and as family in your presence. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a story, a book entitled Glorious Mess. I just kind of love the title of that book. It's written by a fellow by the name of Michael Howerton. And in it, he tells the story of how when he was a little kid, he loved to play football with all of the neighborhood kids, and especially if it was on a field after a rainy day. And this was particularly true. They had this just on a day when they had this tremendous downpour of rain, and the they found this gully in their neighborhood that had about two inches of water in it. And so all of the neighborhood boys gathered together and they started playing football in that gully and all of that water. And you can imagine the mess that it was. When you, you hit somebody or tackled somebody, it seemed like they would just slide for yards and yards and yards. And that, that football would become greasy like, you know, you know a, 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 a greased pig. And so there were lots of fumbles. And there was lots of gang tackling, and there was lots of laughter. And these kids are just having a blast playing football in this water, just sliding around, getting messy. Uh, there came a point in the game where Mike really hit one of his friends pretty hard and tackled him pretty hard. And it seemed like the kid just slid for miles and miles. And they were all laughing. And, and Mike said to himself, this must be heaven. Until he saw his friend stand up. And he couldn't believe his eyes, but on the back of his friend's shirt, after he had slid for a ways, was wet toilet paper. And then he realized that that smell he had been smelling was not normal. And he realized that they were playing in sewage. And that because of this rain and the flooding, the sewage pipe had exploded and it flooded that area. And he said at the top of his lungs, we're playing in sewage water, we're playing in the sewer. And everybody ran. He said that it was a moment of mental transformation. Real mental transformation. You know, one of the most basic steps in making progress in life, and especially in the kingdom of God, is to change the way that you think. The way that you, you think about life and the way that you react and respond to the circumstances around you and, and, and the parameters, the, the new parameters and guidelines that you put in your life in order to live according to God's will. It's about growing up. It's about the process of maturing in Christ. And as Paul will say in a bunch of different places, growing up into the likeness of Jesus or being conformed to His image or, or imitating Him or as John would say, to walk in His steps as, as, his, as His disciples. It's about growing up. Now when you think about 1 Corinthians, which is the book we're looking at this morning, there are lots of themes. In fact, every chapter is just filled with sermons and we could spend an entire year just going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. But there is one theme in 1 Corinthians I want to stress right now. It will be up here on the screen. I want you to write it down. The theme is this. 1 Corinthians underscores the importance of spiritual maturity. Life as a disciple is not going to be easy. And life as a disciple inside of the body of Christ, that is the church, the family of God, the relationships that we have with each other at times are going to be glorious and at times not so much. And at times, the thing that is going to cause us as a church to remain healthy and to remain unified and to remain intact and to remain on track is the degree of spiritual maturity that we have pressed our lives into for a period of time. Now, unfortunately, this is one of the things that Paul chastises the Corinthians for, for being immature. He says, you're street wise, but you're not, you're, you're, you're street smart, but you're not kingdom wise. 
He says in the third chapter, you need to grow up. Beginning in verse 1, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the what church? By the Spirit. But as people who are still, say it together, worldly. Mere infants in Christ. By the way, that's where the babes in Christ phraseology comes from. The babes in Christ. Mere infants in Christ. He continues, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready, for you are still, say it, worldly. He chastises them for being worldly people, not mature people in Christ. Now, that must have been a, a really painful thing for him to write. I think, as I read, especially 2 Corinthians, Paul is absolutely fond of these people that make up this church. You know, in the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, you have a lot of professors, you have a lot of coaches, you have a lot of tutors, but you only have one father. And that's how I feel about you, since I was the one that helped bring you to this, this birth, this new birth into the kingdom, into this new life with God. He felt like a father to them. I mean, he was concerned, as a father is for children, he was concerned about what was going on with them. But in some ways, I think it's how this church got planted, how it got started at the very beginning that really made the difference. You know, if you were to look on a map, Corinth was located on the isthmus that connected the, the gigantic Peloponnese-looking island to the rest of Greece. There was just that little thin strip of land that connected all of Greece with the Peloponnese. And because of where Corinth was, uh, was situated on that little isthmus, it could handle trade from the Gulf of Corinth, which was up to the north, or to its east and kind of a little bit to the south, the Cyronic, or the Saronic Sea. And because it was the major city on that isthmus, it, can trade, it, it controlled all of those trade routes going east and west. But one of the important things to know about the city, and Paul knew about it, was that this city, the city of Corinth, was given a second chance the same way that Paul was given a second chance. Back in 146 B.C., about uh, a little over uh, 200 years before Paul actually arrived there, the Romans had completely destroyed that city, 146 B.C. And not only did they raise it to the ground and destroy it, but they took measures to make sure that it was never built again. Yet, about 100 years later, a fellow by the name of Julius Caesar, who was in charge of the world at that time, decided that it needed to be rebuilt, and so he did anew. And so by the time we get to the book of Acts, Corinth has, has, has really begun to grow and to blossom again. It has become not just a place of immorality, which was part of its former life, but in its new city life, it had become a place of learning and a place of wealth. And Paul is on a second missionary journey in chapter 18 when he gets there. But before he gets there, you know how the story goes. Paul gets to Philippi. And he gets to Philippi and he plants a church there. And there's great success there. And there's great stories there. But the planting of the church and the establishment of the kingdom of God in a city where God was not known, where Christ was not known, was not without bruising and without suffering and without some time in prison in Acts chapter 16. And Paul leaves from Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica and he goes to Berea in Acts chapter 17. And he barely escapes all of that stuff in Philippi to get to those places only to find that the agitation and the opposition and the rejection, the resistance and the pushback is happening there again. And so by the time he comes to Corinth in chapter 18, he describes it this way in chapter 2 verse 3, in weakness and with great fear and with what? trembling. Paul's beat up. And he's bruised and he's been in jail and he's suffered. 
And everywhere it goes, it seems like there's just resistance, resistance, and resistance. Now he's going to Corinth. And he does so with fear and, and with weakness and with trembling. But the Lord, in a dream, assures him of his safety and that his work would be successful. And we go back to Acts chapter 18. Look at what happens in verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be a, what? Afraid. Keep on, say it, speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And Paul walks through that door. And he stays about a year and a half. He sees the church established. And once that year and a half period of time is over, he decides, you know, it's time to go back to Ephesus. Picks up Aquila and, and, and Priscilla at that point. Heads off to Jerusalem before heading home to Antioch. And while Paul is gone, trouble begins to brew in Corinth. This church that God said, I want you to go. I know it's been tough, but I want you to go. I'm with you. You're not going to be harmed. You're, you're, you're going to be successful. I have many people in this city. He goes back and on the way... Back to Jerusalem, back home in Antioch, he hears that trouble is beginning to brew in Corinth. And the church in Corinth has become troubled. And the list of issues that this church is facing in a short period of time is tremendous. We don't have time to go, to go through all of these in depth. Let me give you the, the list of nine problems very, very quickly. What Paul hears and begins to address begins with the church being divided into personality factions. There are people in that church saying, you know, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I am of, of, of Cephas. And they begin to divide and, and to go after their, their favorite personality. And the church is divided. And Paul says, is Christ divided? I mean, in all of that time that I've been with you, have I ever spoke to you about a divided Christ? Christ is one. Was Paul crucified for you? And so he begins to attack all of that disunity and fragmentation in the fellowship of that church. Chapter 4, part of the reason too, is not just the, the personality factions, but some are beginning to question Paul's leadership. And then on top of that, when you get to chapter 11, the church is completely missing the point of the Lord's Supper. Here is an act that they are being reminded by the cross and the, the new covenant and the blood and the body and the resurrection that God has taken everybody through faith and brought them into one body. And that is to be re remembered and commemorized in, in the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, to be reminded that regardless of rich, poor, whatever color, they're one in Christ. And yet now they're divided at the very point of that unity being remembered and commemorated in, in, in chapter 11. And it's such a gross, profound misrepresentation of the meaning of the supper that members of that, that church, that body, are literally beginning to suffer and some to die. In chapter 5, the church is tolerating a notorious case of immorality. There's a man who is living with his stepmother. And Paul says, even the pagans are grossed out by that. Even, even those who don't know Christ are saying, what in the world is going on with that? And then in chapter 6, the church's public reputation has already been hurt by the, the immorality, but it's also being hurt by the intra-church litigation and lawsuits. No one is forgiving anybody of anything. Nobody is sacrificing or, or being wronged for the sake of the kingdom just like their Lord was. 
And so the church is being fragmented even more so by courts. Chapter 7, the church is struggling with the very idea of marriage. In chapter 8, the church debated whether or not you could eat meat sacrificed to idols. Some said yes. Some said you couldn't. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, the church just had this terrible perspective on spiritual gifts. It completely misguided their commitment to love one another. And in the middle of talking about maturity and spiritual gifts and how they should be used, Paul says, listen, you guys are talking about spiritual gifts. Let me show you what it means to be really mature. Learn how to love one another. Speaking in tongues, prophecies, all of these other kinds of things... As important as they are to the kingdom, they, they're nothing compared to love. If you really want to show how you're mature, if you really want to show how profound you are in Christ, then love some other people. And don't keep the wrongs, but be patient and be kind. Don't, you know, don't think of yourself better than, than others, but, but, but love. And then in chapter 15, the church did not understand the resurrection. The church did not understand where it was going to end up. And when you think about it, it really sounds like a church that none of us would have been very comfortable with. I mean, we probably would have gone into the church of Corinth one time and said, what a mess, turned around and found something else. We would have started looking for another church to attend. We probably would have started speaking in negative tones about the church in Corinth. You know, it's got a lot of warts. People in that church over in Corinth, kind of crazy. Best to get your 10-foot pole out before you touch them. That's not what Paul did. When it comes to dealing with issues in life, especially inside of the church, that, that is a moment of discernment. You have to discern. You have to figure out, am I the problem? Is the reason that this problem, this, this fragmentation is taking place in the church is because of me? And if I, it is, if it is my problem, if it is my fault, then I need to what? Grow up. Stop being worldly. Grow up. But if I'm not the problem, but I'm still in the midst of this fragmentation, this disunity, this, this aggravation, this frustration, this, this, this problematic era of a church, I'm either the problem or I am the solution. And that is what Paul did. Paul loved the church and wrote them a letter helping them to get things straight. He did not give up on them, but he reminded them of a very important fact of the kingdom of God. He said in chapter 2, verse 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. That is, not without conventional human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on me, human wisdom, but on say it. Hey, do you know what the answer to every problem in the church is? God's power. God's power working in His disciples. And the key is, we ask ourselves the question, what is it that God really wants? Which sometimes is the easy answer. We want, God wants people to love and to be strengthened and sacrificial and, and to live holy lives and to be righteous and all of these kinds of things. To be, to be light and, and salt out into the community. But then the second question, and probably more important, I don't know. It's not just what does God want, but can, can God do it? Can God resolve the issues and bring unity into His church? In good times and in not so good times. And so Paul 
before he writes a single word of instruction about how they're supposed to think about the resurrection and marriage and about this, this sexual immorality and, and all of these factions and, and, and messed up in all of these different areas of, of, of spiritual gifts and such, he reminds them of who they are in God's power. And so he begins by talking about the, 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 the benefits that are part of being a member of the Lord's body. How does a church stay together and work through these issues that threaten its existence? He gives some insight in the first nine verses. He says, number one, remember your incomparable identity. Remember your incomparable identity. He says in verse two, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. What are you? Let's say it together. Saints. Saints. By calling. Our church is filled up with people who are being made holy by God. You know, your membership in this church family, the MacArthur Park Church of Christ, is not because you're a friend of mine or I happen to like you. And I love everybody. Or it's not because, you know, you're, you're in with one of the elders in a special relationship. You are a member of this church family because God has rescued you from darkness. You are a member of this church family because you trust God to get your life straight through forgiveness and His grace and your sins being washed away and His Spirit being put inside of you, you are in a community of like-minded people when you are transferred from that kingdom of darkness into the body of Christ. A saint has to be one of Paul's favorite words for Christians because when you look at all of his letters, he uses that word over 60 times in his, his correspondence. But we get kind of jammed up with it because in popular usage, it sounds like something that we don't really want to be called because we don't want to be seen as super self-righteous. In popular usage, it means a person who never does anything wrong, never missteps, is always living morally above everybody else. We say, you know, he's never cheated on his wife. He's a saint. Or we say, you know, she never really loses it with those kids when I would have. She's a saint. The word that is applied to us, that each of us are, actually means someone who is being set aside or set apart by God or made holy by God. Saints are people who have been changed by God. We are, we are, uh, the, the, you know, let me, let me, let me say it this way. You know, one of the big differences when it, when it comes to a marriage or it comes to a squabble or some, some kind of a family relationship or even a friendship relationship inside of the church that gets messed up, sometimes it just escalates and it's just one thing after another. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the folks that are involved, let's that, just say it's a marriage. They, they come to the minister or to one of the elders and they say, you know, he said, she said, he said, she said. And at some point, and you don't have to be very well educated, you get a kind of an idea of what's happening here. And at one point, you just have to stop all of that and say, you know, all you're doing is just fanning the flame. You're not quenching it. You're, you're, this venting is just making it bigger. And you need to realize that only God can sort it out. That human beings, there will always be a he said, she said, only God can sort it out. You know what you need to do? You need to forgive. And you need to change. Christianity is not a hybrid political party. 
Christianity is about living as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth in every area of your life. It's not just philosophy. It's not just a worldview. It's not just a mindset. It is a changed life. You are called to be a disciple of Jesus, which means being conformed to His image, which means that you are living your life as the model human being, which is the Christ. And what that means is that sometimes you have to make a sacrifice and sometimes you have to do things that are painful in order for the will of God to be done not only in your own life, but in the life of the church or in the life of a relationship or in the life of your finances. Remember your incomparable identity when it comes to any of these issues. You are a saint. Somebody who forgives because you've been forgiven. Somebody who loves because you have been loved. Somebody that can speak the truth in grace because you have heard the gospel in truth and grace. But not only do you remember your incomparable identity, you rely on the superabundance of blessing. In verse 5 and in verse 7, Paul writes, In Him you have been what? Say it together. Enriched. I say it all together. Enriched. You've been made rich. You have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge. You know, you read the commentaries and they're saying, you know, it's this kind of speech and this kind of knowledge. And they try to relay it back to everything that's happening in the church. And that may be so. I think Paul's saying you're enriched in every part of your life, whether it's in this area or in this area, everything in between, it's enriched. Therefore, verse 7, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You know, when you look at the list of areas that the church in Corinth is messed up on, and I mean really messed up on, you just sort of despair of it ever getting sorted out until you realize that every saint in the kingdom has been enriched by God, which means in this particular context, you are a solution. Whether it be in your attitude, whether it be in your counsel, whether it be in your prayer life, whether it be in your humility and contriteness, whether it be in your graciousness, you have been enriched by God. You have everything you need in order that in whatever adversity, whatever situation, whatever fix, high or low, good or bad, high or, or, or low you find yourself, you know that you are a solution because God has made you that way. Every Christian has been given a treasury of blessing, not lacking anything to live out the ramifications of being a saint. Most Christians do not realize that they are living well below their spiritual means, though. And then last one, we'll close here. You recognize the return of Jesus. He says in verses 7 and 8, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly, what? Wait. We're waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we talk a lot about the return. And we talk about how great it will be. We, we talk about how wonderful it will be. To be out of this world and in the world to come. The world where there's not a, a whiff of sin. There's not a scent of any of the cancers. There, there's, there's, not, there's, there's not anything in the breeze of, of despair or depression or meanness or hostility. 
And the more that we grow up and the more that we realize that in our calling to be saints and, and, and we grow up into the conformity of Jesus, and as Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, we begin to know His mind because of our, our, our close proximity to Him because we have literally sacrificed ourselves to Him on a daily basis. We're drawing near to Him. As we begin to think about the greatness of the world to come, we begin to see this world through the eyes of God. And as we see what the gospel is doing in taking people from different races and different skin colors and academic backgrounds and education and painful experiences and, 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 and socioeconomic experiences and means and ways and status and, and titles and all of these things, and we see how everybody is being brought together, that the church is not colorblind, but the church is colorful. That the, in the church, we're made up of people, regardless of rank in the society, we are, we are made up of people who are humbled by, by the status that they have before the cross of Jesus. That as, as, as a church, we realize that this world is full of the thorns and the thistles, and it's only by God's grace, through the sacrifice of Jesus, only by the cross, that we have been able to die to that life. And those thorns and thistles, even though we still struggle with them from time to time, that we have been able to die to those thorns and thistles only to find ourselves truly becoming those people that God have always wanted us to be. But haven't been. And the earth has not seen until the time of Jesus and has not seen since. And that just changes our perspective on things when we begin to see things through the eyes of God as His saints with an incomparable identity in this world. Enriched in every way. To love and to serve, you know, to love and to be loved, to celebrate and to be celebrated, to fellowship and to be fellowshipped. All of these things. The Gospel is it. It's what makes the difference. That if, you, you know, this morning in the middle school class, we talked about, you know, bullies out of Obadiah. And I said, you know, what is it that a, that a bully does? You know, you make a mistake or you have some kind of a little weakness in your life. And what does a bully do? Makes it big, you know. And what does Satan do to what that bully is doing? Makes it even bigger. That little thing becomes bigger and bigger. That's the work of Satan. But what is it that the gospel does? What is it that Christ does because of the cross, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because of his lordship in the church, because he's still active? He's still active in, in the world. Instead of making it bigger and bigger and bigger, what does, what does the Christ do with that weakness and with that sin? Makes it disappear. When you have that kind of perspective, you just go into problems differently. When you know what it took for you in your weakness to become the person that you are today in Christ? Aren't you willing to be patient and sacrificial and at times even to be wronged in order for somebody to be blessed and the kingdom to be stronger? Are you not, because of what Christ has done for you, willing to go the extra mile to be patient, to go that extra mile, to do what is necessary, to, 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 to speak that truth in grace, just as it was spoken to you in the Gospel, saying the truth, that you are a sinner. But the grace is that you're still loved by God. And in that love by God for you, He did something about that. 
at great cost to himself. I mean, when you think about the sacrifice of Jesus, do you really think that God got the better end of that deal? That your life to be saved for all of eternity is equal to the death of His Son? And knowing that that Son's return means that it's not just a philosophy, but it is a living reality, does that not change the way that you interact with other people and, and, and discover the ways that God's grace can play, blaze a, a path of resolution and reconciliation regardless of what happens? Of what, what, what caused it in the first place? What triggered it? That's the Christ. That's the Christ. And that's why we worship God. And that's why we remember every week His death, burial, and resurrection. And that's why we remind each other, you know, it's really not about philosophies and it's really not about just, you know, adopting a value system that's Christian as opposed to that which is something else. But it's about the living reality of God Himself and His Son coming back in the world to come. And the way that all of that blessing has been poured into our life right now in such a way that we're just melted. Radically transformed people. Saints. And if our church can minister in some way to you this morning, we want to do that. We want to do that. And some of our shepherds, our elders, are going to be down here at the front. And if there are ways that we can reach out to you and, and to share our faith with you and help you connect better to God or to, for the first time with His Son Christ, come down to the front as the rest of us stand and sing together. Hi, me.